We are continuing in our study of Samuel, and I'm going to start. Paul instructs his mentor, his son in the faith, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So each week we read our Scripture passage together, and that is 2 Samuel chapter 21. We're reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 22, from the English Standard Version. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he has put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What? What do you say I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we would have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, and she bore to Saul Armoni and Mephibosheth and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahothalite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first day of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ea took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ish-Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Shibagai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again a war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jeriorajim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was war again at Gath. And there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. 
24 in number. And he was also one of the descendants from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. You guys pray with me as we look at the text. Father, I pray that you would incline our hearts to you, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Would you unite our hearts to fear your name? Would you satisfy us with your steadfast love? Would you convict and comfort us? And if there's correction and rebuke, would you train us in righteousness through your word? And would you give us ears to hear? Lord, as was prayed earlier, I pray for those who are sick, those who might be watching at home now, that through this service, through watching, through listening to the sermon later, you would strengthen and encourage those who are feeling weary and discouraged. Would you help me to, to speak boldly and clearly as I ought to? In Jesus' name, amen. Last night, my friend Thomas and I went and saw the new Black Panther movie, Wakanda Forever. And we saw it at the Century Cinemark in Federal Way. Any of you guys ever been to this theater on 320th? I haven't been there before, but it was luxury. Let me tell you. We had the, the theater that was the, the, I think they called it the XD screen, and there was these luxury loungers. I could put my arms full out like this and not even touch the person next to me. And you could recline, and I was <laughs> just sitting there with a big box of popcorn, just really having a good time. And the thing with a huge screen and there was just speakers up along the wall, it's just immersive sound in this theater was the beauty of enjoying a story this way. We are storytellers and we love story. And the medium of movies, you really felt like you were a part of the story. And you know, while in 2022, we have incredible technology now, CGI, computer-generated imagery that looks so realistic, it's insane. We sometimes can have, and I notice this in my heart, kind of this intellectual pride sometimes, as we think about an ancient book like the Bible, for say, and it seems to us a little bit out of touch, a little bit boring, a little bit like I'd rather engage story in a movie than, than the Bible. You guys with me? Anyone think it's easier to, re- to watch a movie than read the Bible sometimes? <laughs> the Bible, though, is a, is a, it's a book from a literary genius. I mean, just think about Moses, for example. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He was trained in one of the most powerful nations, empires at the time in Egypt with the the advanced schooling. And Moses was seemingly just a very smart man and the cherry on top, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is a sweet book, the, the Torah. Then you look at the rest of the Old Testament, it's brilliant writing and literary devices. And oftentimes we, we don't know the beauty of the scriptures because we haven't necessarily been taught how to study it or we don't see things clearly. It's like going to a 3D movie and forgetting the glasses. You guys have done that? You move the glasses down, it's like, oh, stuff doesn't look right. It's a little bit blurry. It doesn't look really cool in 3D. It just looks like if I watch this too much longer, I'm gonna get a headache. Blues and reds are distorting and it looks really weird. There are great storytellers at Disney. There are great storytellers that are working on Marvel and Star Wars movies. There are great storytellers at Amazon, HBO, Netflix, right? That are writing great shows, engaging shows. 
But if God is real, if Jesus is real, if his word is true, if this is inspired by the word of God, then this story is the most awesome. This story is not like any other kind of story. No other story like the Bible, like the story of the Bible, like God's word, can produce life change, faith, holiness, life-giving, relationship-building, faith-forming, community-establishing kind of power like the word of God. So when we come to a story like 2 Samuel 21, we're tempted to think, whoa, what? I was studying this week and commentators are saying this is one of the more difficult passages in the scriptures to understand, to grasp. It's tough. One of the ways I think we can begin to grasp the story of the Bible is looking at the literary devices that the authors use. And one of the most more common literary devices in the scripture is something called a chiasm. You guys ever heard of this word? Chiasm, chiastic structure. You guys with me? No? No. You're in luck, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) So there's all kinds of literary devices and there's typology and there's themes that run throughout the scriptures that make it just a beautifully, uh, a book that's written by a genius. It's like God wrote it. It's awesome. But a chiastic structure is, is used to kind of focus in our attention on a, on a main, it's kind of like a bullseye. We focus in on the centerpiece. It's, it's used actually, in fact, in the final four chapters of Samuel. This is a chiasm. There's a chiastic structure to it. Chiasm comes from the Greek chi, which kind of looks like to us an X. So it's mirrored. So how chiasm works is there's a mirror effect. And if you have essentially a thought of like thought A, thought B, and thought C, that is mirrored. So it would go, the, the order of it would go thought A, thought B, thought C, thought C, thought B, thought A, to help you focus on what's in the middle, the thought C, what's the most important. So a simple example of a chiasm or chiastic structure would be some of these sayings, right? You guys know these? When the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's a chiasm. Okay. Cool. By failing to prepare, you are... Preparing to fail. You guys know these things? Uh, example in the New Testament is found in John 1. And uh, Eli has some slides up there you can put up. You guys know this. In John 1, it says, if you're not familiar, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So that's a chiasm there. A-B-B-A. And sometimes we see a chiastic structure in a sentence or two. Sometimes we see it across chapters of a book. And that's what we're seeing in 2 Samuel. Uh, The last four chapters form like an epilogue. And these chapters are not in chronological order. They're more so ordered thematically. And they center on the prayer of David, chapters 22 and 23. Carrie's going to be covering chapter 22 next week. And our friend Tim Howe is going to be covering chapter 23 the week after that. And then we'll wrap up in in chapter 24. But on the screen there, there's a, a way that you could break up the arrangement of this uh, this is from John Woodhouse in his commentary on 2 Samuel. He categorizes the arrangement like this. So you can think of chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. There's a problem in David's kingdom. That's God's wrath. And that coincides with the last, chapter 24. A problem in David's kingdom, God's wrath. And it's whether it's a famine and punishment or a census and punishment, that's the bookends of these two chapters. And you work in the middle and we see the strength of God's kingdom with his mighty men. Those are listed in the second half of our chapter today, chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. And that coincides with the strength of David's kingdom with his mighty men. The second part in chapter 23, 8 through 49. 
And then those two chapters in the middle, chapter 22 and 23, talk about the hope of David's kingdom. And it's as if, as the author, the narrator is structuring the last four chapters in this way. He's saying, with, with human history, we're kind of sandwiched with suffering and evil. But in the middle, hope. There's, there's something coming from the line of David. There's hope in the kingdom of David. That makes sense? I thought that was helpful in studying it, as we can see, because the, the chapters are a little bit different. It reads a little bit different than the body of, of the, what we've seen so far in 2 Samuel. And I think seeing the way the author has intended to present the material helps us to grasp what he's saying. So, you guys still with me? Amen. Chiasm, now you know. <laughs> Chiastic structure. And it's communicating even in the midst of national calamities and suffering, even in the midst of judgment, even drought that's caused by King Saul and suffering that, that happens from King David in chapter 24. In between, in the midst of this, there's the promise of hope that the messianic king will come from the line of David who would establish an eternal kingdom of justice and peace. So let's, let's dive into chapter 21. We're not told when, but we're told that there's a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David seeks the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there was blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So if, it's like if you're reading along in the story narrative of the Bible and you're unfamiliar with who are these Gibeonites, he's reminding you of something that happened back in Joshua as the people of Israel are on the conquest to take over the promised land and they come across these Gibeonites. And even though they were instructed, hey, wipe the land clean, like cleanse the evil that's there and take hold of the promised land. They, they make a covenant with these Gibeonites because these Gibeonites trick the Israelites. The Gibeonites come in Joshua 15. They deceive the people of Israel. They come, they dress up in worn out clothes. They pack like really dry, crumbly bread. And they say, yeah, this was like hot and fresh when we left. And we've been traveling so long. And they present themselves as these poor, pitiful people that need to be spared in mercy. And the Israelites make a covenant with the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites have seen how the Israelites are just destroying nations. They heard about what the Israelites did at Jericho. And they're thinking, well, I can't stand up to that. So if you can't beat them, join them. So they deceive the Israelites. They come to them and the Israelites make a covenant. And this is really important. Joshua 15, 14 through 15 says this. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. The Israelites did not ask counsel about these Gibeonites. They just made a covenant with them. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And that's an important thought and idea. And they did not ask counsel from the Lord. I think we'll see that in our story today. Even though they were previously instructed to conquer the land, they just make a covenant without seeking God's face. So it's like, even though they probably shouldn't have made a covenant in the first place, they have a covenant. And now Saul has broken the covenant by trying to kill them, to massacre them, destroy them. So there's blood guilt on the land. He's killed many of the Gibeonites. And David says to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement? You may bless the heritage of the Lord. And the Gibeonites say, it's not a matter of silver and gold. And, and, and we can't put to death any man in Israel in kind of a vengeful way, vengeful blood guilt. But David says, what shall I do for you? And they said, 
let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And David said, I will give them. Notice again there, he inquires of the Lord about the blood guilt, but there's no mention of him inquiring of the Lord for this, this decision that he's making. He's giving up seven sons and he takes two sons from Rizpah and five sons from Mirab and they, they hang them on the mountain of the Lord, seven of them. And seven, seems, it, it symbolized completeness, fullness. So seven sons dying is like full retribution, payment, full payment for the wickedness of Saul. And this is brutal though, isn't it? Money can't bring resolution according to them. So they, they say they don't have a right to kill an Israelite, but we're going to kill seven of them for the Lord. And we're told Rizpah, the mother of two of the sons that have been killed, she takes sackcloth and she protects the bodies. She spreads cloth over the bodies so that birds and animals don't pick at the bodies. And it's almost as though when David's told about this, that Rizpah does this, this act of love and sacrifice, this great demonstration of love for her sons, protecting their bodies from disgrace and from dishonor and from desecration. It's as if seeing Rizpah try to honor the dead kind of reminds David, encourages David of how Saul and Jonathan were not honored when they died. Their bones were stolen. They were hung before the Philistines by the men of Jabesh Gilead. So 2 Samuel 21, 14 says, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son, Jonathan, in the land of Benjamin, in the tomb of his father, Kish, and they did all that the king commanded. And then it says, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. That's kind of a disturbing section. There's famine, there's payment, and then God responds. And then we're told about the mighty men, that second part of the chiasm, and we're told about four wars. There's four battles, four different wars between the Philistines and Israel. Look at the four different times that that phrase is repeated. Verse 15, there was war again. Verse 18, there was again war. Verse 19, there was again war. Verse 20, there was again war. We're told after the first war that David grows weary. We're seeing some of the, the weakness. David is getting older. He's not the fighter that he was. You continue in the story of Kings, you see that David gets weaker and weaker. And David's men swear to him, you're retired now, man. You're no longer going out. You're not going to go out with us in battle. And in the third war, in verse 19, we see the phrase, Elhanan struck down Goliath the Gittite. And there are some scholars that will say, well, here's another example of the Bible contradicting itself. And then we'd immediately jump to that conclusion. Or there was an error made, and David really didn't kill Goliath. It was this guy named Elhanan. Or Elhanan was credited to this. As I was studying the, the passage this week, it seems like it's more likely that Goliath was just a common name for the Philistines. Or Goliath was like a proper title, a proper noun, a champion, similar to like Pharaoh or king or czar. This is a title, not necessarily a name. And that's how the story ends. Famine, seven sons killed. God responds to the plea of the land. We're told of four battles. David's mighty men are winning these battles. And we're sitting here saying, okay, how do we make sense of this? That's what I was saying this week. Help me. <laughs> how, how do you want me to encourage your church with this? Studying this passage, you know, one that's described a difficult one. There seems to be two different perspectives, two different schools of thought I can summarize for you about this passage. Right? Often in, in biblical narrative, we're not necessarily given, how does God feel about what just happened? Sometimes we are, but a lot of times we're not. 
And in the narrative, it's almost as if he, the, the narratives are assuming that we know the law, we've read through the law to know how God would respond in this moment to this. So on the one hand, one school of thought was God has punished the house of Saul for the evil that Saul had done and his family is punished because Saul was king. He had a higher standard. He was the representative. His household could be punished for his sins because he was to represent the people. He had a higher calling, higher responsibility. Elsewhere, we see this in the books of Kings. Like the, the king's whole family suffer because of what the king had done because of the wickedness of the father. But on the other hand, others would say, a person familiar with the law would know God's command in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, 16, which says this, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. And they will argue that what David did here is out of line with the law of God. It's not what God would want for seven sons to be killed. Yes, David inquires of the Lord about the famine, but we're not told that he inquires of the Lord after he tells him it's because of blood guilt is on the land. So could there have been another way to solve the blood guilt? Maybe. We're not told in the narrative that God approved of David's plan, the killing of seven sons. We're also not told that because these seven sons were killed, God heard the cries of the people and then there was no more famine. That part doesn't come right after the seven sons are killed. It comes after Saul and Jonathan are buried and honored properly. So it's not as though the Gibeonites, what the Gibeonites did, satisfied the wrath of God, and it kind of made God respond to the people. I like the way John Woodhouse said it in his commentary in 2 Samuel. It's like this. David's attempt to deal with the consequences of Saul's sin horrifies it, us. Perhaps his subsequent effort to give those who had been executed a decent burial was an attempt to make up for what he had done. If you do not listen carefully to the story, you could think that the death of Saul's sons was God's requirement and recompense for Saul's slaughter of the Gibeonites. That is not what the text tells us. Indeed, it is clear that the Lord did not answer the prayer for the land until after David had shown compassion and honor towards Saul, Jonathan, and the seven who had been executed. God answered the prayer for the land when and how he chose to do so, not because of something David did. At first, at first glance, you see the story and you can be tend to see that, oh, God wanted to kill seven sons so that the blood guilt would be removed. That's not what happens. The story is complicated, like life. Suffering is complicated. Yeah. And in light of the fact that he was dealing with the Gibeonites, which we would reference back to Joshua 15, when they did not inquire about the Lord, and the fact that the text is silent about David inquiring of the Lord about what was to be done about the blood guilt, I think this story shows us the devastation of sin that occurs when we don't inquire of the Lord. Yeah, I was thinking about the story a lot this week. Taking seven sons and hanging them is horrendous. But if I think that this is worse, this is more egregious and sinful than not seeking the Lord, yeah, it shows where my weight and my value lies. You guys with me? We skim past the part of, yeah, David didn't inquire of the Lord, or even Joshua, they didn't inquire of the Lord. It shows where we place our values, our weight. You could summarize the problems, the sins of the people of Israel as not seeking the Lord. Read through Chronicles, this is, this is the, 
the, uh, the theme that repeats again and again and again. First Chronicles 10 instructs us that the first king of Israel, Saul, died because he bro- broke faith. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. He did not seek counsel from the Lord. And the Israelites go on to not seek the Lord. They seek after other idols and other gods and false gods that could not save. And they were ultimately disciplined and exiled from the promised land because they did not seek the Lord. Jesus himself taught that we don't live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how important the word of God is to us. That's how important seeking the Lord is. I think sometimes in our rationalistic and materialistic perspectives, we can neglect the importance of the spiritual, the seeking of the Lord. We know if I, if I don't eat food, it's just a matter of time, my body's going to wither and die. And yet we can oftentimes operate of, if I don't engage in the spiritual food, intake of God's word, prayer, meditation, worship of Jesus, our souls will wither and die. Just can play it off. In marriage, I do marriage counseling. Oftentimes, couples are struggling with Let's say intimacy or communication. And there can be a mentality of the expectation is that this kind of stuff just happens. I mean, like when you're dating, it just happens, right? Intimacy, closeness, unity. And then when you get married, you got to work at it. <laughs> I, know, I, I know you got to work at it. You don't focus on it. You don't work on the relationship. Just a matter of time. You start fighting. You're holding on to bitterness. You're not trusting the other intentions are good and isolation and distance begins to creep in. The needs of kids or house projects or work takes attention and focus, and it leaves the marriage avoided, neglected. A relationship withers and died. I was, I was told, I, I heard the story one time of, uh, there was older guy, wasn't in the best health, but he had a daughter who had a kidney failure, and he was someone who could help give a kidney to his daughter, and he was overweight. The doctor told him, Every time you go to the doctor, hey, man, you should really exercise. He goes, yeah, yeah, you know. Go to the doctor, you know, sometimes they, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I'm overweight, but I don't really want to do anything about it. So I'm not really going to go to the doctor. I don't want to hear that. But when the doctor said, your kidney is not in a healthy enough place to be donated to the daughter, he was motivated to go to the gym, to work out, to be healthier than he's ever been in his whole life, so that in the time frame that his daughter needed the kidney, he could give it to her. He needed that motivation that was what was most important to him. Not his, not his own health, but the health of his daughter. Ultimately, I think if we don't have the, this kind of view of seeking the Lord as it is vital to health, like without this, we die. We will easily neglect it. It will easily bounce down the rings of our heart of priorities and values. Ultimately, we don't seek the Lord through his word, through prayer, because we don't believe we need to. It's not life or death to us. We don't seek the Lord because we don't want to. Our desires and our loves and our commitments are manifested in our lives, our practices, our habits. What we do overflows from what we love, what we believe. So we need to be honest about ourselves with our own spiritual devotion as we look at the story like this and see where are we at? What is our reliance upon? How would we characterize our dependence upon seeking the Lord? Not in a kind of legalistic way, but a, a heart posture. I want to be reliant upon God and, and seek him and pursue him and grow in my faith and seek to be devoted and pursue life in God. You guys with me? Yep, 
If we're not honest about our own hearts and the fact that our hearts are in need of change, we're often, as David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Create me a new heart, O God. We often become sleepy and calloused. It's important for us to pray to God to help us to pray to God. We need God's help to help us remember what is most important, what ultimately is real, what's eternal, what really matters. We don't just sit around and wait. One day, I hope God gives me a heart for prayer. We seek to cultivate practices and habits that help us grow and learn to love. There's a helpful book by a guy named James K.A. Smith. It's a book called You Are What You Love, and he contends that our loves are formed by our habits. Our loves are acquired through the practices that we've immersed ourselves in. It says this, this is because our action, our doing, bubbles up from our loves, which, as we've observed, are habits we've acquired through the practices we've immersed in. That means the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood, quote unquote, of consciousness. I might be learning to love a telos that I'm not even aware of and that nonetheless governs my life in unconscious ways. So the habits that we, the practices that we engage ourselves in not only reflect what we love, but they form that very love. See this dynamic? If we're not aware of how our actions reflect our love or how our habits form and shape our loves, this dynamic of, you know, we talk about what we love and we love what we talk about. We could say, I, I wish I could grow in my faith, but I don't have the time. I wish I had time to commune with God the Father in prayer or scripture reading, but if I don't watch two hours of TV a night, I'll get behind on my shows. It's power in this seeking of the Lord that would change our hearts, and it's, I think this text serves as a warning to us and an encouragement. I heard a story this week of a, a minister named Dr. Crane, and he tells the story of a wife who came into his office full of hatred toward her husband. She said this, I do not only want to get rid of him, I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he has hurt me. So Dr. Crane suggested this plan. He says, go home and act as though you really loved your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be kind and considerate and generous. Spare no effort to please him, to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. And after you've convinced him of your underlying love, that you cannot live without him, then drop the bomb. Tell him that you're getting a divorce. That will really hurt him. This is the plan. This is what she does with enthusiasm. She acts as though she loved her husband. For two months, she did this. She showed love, kindness, listening, giving, sharing. And two months pass, she doesn't come back to Dr. Crane. So we asked her, are you ready now to go through with the divorce? And she says, divorce? Never she says, now I've discovered that I, I really do love him. Her actions had changed her feelings. Her motion resulted in emotion. The ability to love is established not so much by promise, but as repeated deeds. So C.S. Lewis talks about it like this. Don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as though you did. As soon as you do this, you find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. Now, this is something that I, I don't know is very, 
I don't hear this in story, in movies. What Disney presents is when we're swept away by feelings of affection, then we follow those feelings and everything works out happily ever after. And then we go back to real life and we realize it doesn't happen like that. We see the tragedy, the devastation of not inquiring of the Lord. And I'm encouraging us, church, don't just sit around and wait. I hope God helps me to feel like I want to pray and then I'll pray. We can pray. God, give me a heart of prayer and pray that fervently. And then we can also pray. Make sense? Our habits and our practices will form and shape our loves. And we can encourage one another in this dynamic. So we see this sad story, suffering in the nation. There's famine for years. People may be dying of starvation. Parents are unable to feed their children. The Gibeonites were suffering. They had been betrayed. The covenant had been broken. They'd been killed by Saul and his zeal. The family of Saul is suffering. Seven of their sons have been executed. I mean, it's hard to imagine the pain of Rizpah as she covers her sons from animals and birds. We can see in the story, though, the reality that sin is, is never just self-inflicted pain. Sin leads to suffering and others are hurt by our sin. The difficulty of the story is also the inadequacy of David's solution. It doesn't give ultimate satisfaction. David cannot fully and finally deal with the curse of the land. Division and fighting will keep going. The problem of pain and suffering will continue. More famine, more drought, more suffering awaits the people of Israel. The consequences of sin have not been fully dealt with. The story points us to the need of full restoration of justice, the promise of new life, the renewal and restoration that is to come. As we hear the story, I was reminded of Romans 5. Here are the words of the gospel from the Apostle Paul. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we live saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation." There was another to come after 2 Samuel who would serve as the seven, the fullness, the completion of total payment for guilt through his blood. Amen. Jesus, the king, the son of David, the son of man, from the line of David, not only sought the Lord in perfect and total dependence and obedience, but he not only established perfect justice, but he became our propitiation by his death. He was the fully and final atoning sacrifice for the curse of the land, the sins of the world. This problem in the kingdom of David is no longer a problem in the kingdom of Christ, the Messiah. It's because of Jesus' sacrifice. His blood is shed for guilty sinners. Those who were formerly guilty can be cleansed. God in his mercy responds to us not by giving us what we deserve, as Kerry instructed us in his sermon on David and Bathsheba, God in his mercy responds to us by not giving us what we deserve. 
And in his grace, he gives us what we don't deserve. This, this reality, the more that you see, I was worthy like this son to be hung for the payment of my sin. And Jesus took my place. The more you come to grips with your own sinfulness, your own neediness, your deep flaws, your urgent need for the grace and mercy of God, the cold, tough heart of self-reliance and self-dependence that often resides will be melted to a heart that seeks the Lord. When we begin to align ourselves with the reality that Jesus is not a matter of theological debate, philosophical speculation, theoretical ideas, a certain perspective, but he's not just a hobby. He's not just something you do part-time. He's not just someone that you turn to when everything else fails. Jesus is our life. He is our savior, our redeemer, our king, our power, our wisdom. You will seek Jesus above all else. Church, we are instructed, I think, encouraged from this passage to seek Jesus. Seek him and you will find him. Knock and he will answer. Ask and it will be given to you. This is a difficult story of sadness and horror. Church, may we we be motivated by the love and mercy of grace to seek Jesus and his guidance and his wisdom. To seek his teaching in all of life and to help each other grow in seeking the Lord together, Amen? amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that out of your glorious riches that we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner being. That Jesus would dwell in our hearts through faith. Father, I pray that we would be rooted and established in love, grounded in love, that we would have the power together with all of God's people to grasp how wide and long, how high and deep is the love of Jesus and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I pray, Father, that you would give your spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we would know you better. Would the eyes of our hearts be opened and enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the glorious inheritance in God's holy people and the incomparably great power for us who believe. Lord, thank you that you responded to us, not in hanging us up on a tree before the mountain of the Lord as we suffered the just consequence of our evil, but your son took our place. He was the propitiation, mm-hmm. the payment. Yeah, come on. That's right. Lord, we can forget and lose focus and move on. And your word has a way of bringing us back to humility, to humble ourselves, to realize the danger of self-reliance and self-dependence. We seek other things above or instead of you. Mm. 
would you give us a heart that, that longs to be with you and seek you? We know we can't do this on our own. Apart from you, we, we can do nothing. And I pray that you'd give us wisdom and discernment to see our sisters and our brothers around us that are in need of encouragement. They've forgotten. They've lost the joy of the Lord. Lord, help us to be a community where we can express our doubts and our insecurities and our fears. We don't have to be quick to fix. We can sit and listen and be with one another. Lord, help us not to be passive, complacent. We do want to seek after you. We want to know you more. We want our eyes to be opened to see more of your glory in your word. Pray that you would do this, Father, for your glory. We pray to, to you who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work that's within us. Jesus, to you be glory in the church. Father, to you be glory in the church. In our church and throughout all those that know you by name and cry out to you, would you be glorified. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.